Today is a, a special day in the life of the church globally. And if you woke up this morning and you were preoccupied with responsibilities and maybe trying to get kids dressed and fed and out the door, and maybe even as you drove here, you're thinking about all the things, you, you know, the, the, the check engine light came on or the, the fuel gauge went to E and you were unaware, um, it would be easy to understand how we might miss that this is the Sunday before Resurrection Sunday. It's the Sunday just a few mere days before Good Friday when we remember the crucifixion of Jesus on the cross. And so today is a day known as Palm Sunday. And Palm Sunday is significant because according to the Bible, Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem with the hopes of his followers riding high. And yet just less than a week later, Jesus would be executed and he would be buried. And so today is important. And so what I want to do this morning is to take a a quick break from where we have been working through the book of Luke. And I want to jump ahead to Luke's account of Palm Sunday. And if you're new here, welcome. We're delighted that you're here. What we typically do week after week is we just pick a book of the Bible and we just kind of make our way through week after week. And we pick up where we left off the week before. And uh, if that were the case, this morning we would be picking up in Luke 18.31. But as I said, I want to jump ahead to the Palm Sunday narrative. Now, if you're wondering, what, what about those verses in between? Let not your heart be troubled. We will get to those verses in the next couple of weeks. We'll, we'll come back to those. But I think this morning it would be good for us to look at the first Palm Sunday, as it were, to kind of set the stage for this Friday, which is Good Friday, when we remember the, the crucifixion of Jesus, and Easter Sunday morning, a Resurrection Sunday morning. So if you were paying attention when Shannon read the text for us, which I'm sure is all of you because we were all paying attention, you will have noticed that the spotlight is squarely on Jesus in this entire text. So this means that the text is not primarily about the crowd. It's not primarily even about the palm branches. That's why we call it Palm Sunday, because in the other gospel accounts, when Jesus entered the city, people cut down palm branches and they began waving them and declaring Hosanna, right? It was declaring that the king had arrived. They were declaring the royalty of Jesus. If you grew up in a church like mine, Palm Sunday was always marked by, at some point in time in the service, all the kids walking in. I was one of those kids, maybe you were too, that would wave their palm branches and say Hosanna, and then they'd file back out, and that would be a logistics nightmare right now for our security team to try to make sure all the kids got in and got back out and got where they needed to go, so we don't do that, but that's kind of why we call it Palm Sunday, but you notice this text is not primarily about palms. Nor is this text primarily about the Pharisees or even about the donkey that carried Jesus. This text is primarily about Jesus. And so it's fitting that we should ask then this morning, what is it that that God wants us to see about Jesus in this text? And what I want to share are five things that this text reveals to us about 
Jesus. And if you're taking notes and wondering where to space things, we're going to spend most of our time on the very first one because that's kind of foundational. And then we'll move more quickly through third or second through fifth things that it teaches us. First of five things that this text teaches us about Jesus is that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Now, that probably does not come as a shock to many of you in this room. You're like, well, of course Jesus is God. But I think it's important that we don't gloss over the fact that this text, first and foremost, primarily teaches us that Jesus is, in fact, God. And I think to begin with, we should notice that Jesus is doing things here that would be impossible for him to do if he were not divine. He's clearly communicating things that he would not otherwise know if he were not God. For example, just look at the way Jesus already knows about the cult. Verse 29. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you where, on entering, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. Verse 32, so those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. So Jesus, on his way to Jerusalem, sends out two of his disciples as as essentially the advance team. Make preparations to scope it out, to get things Ready, And he gives them detailed instructions about what they will find and what they are to do. But he gives them the instructions with as much confidence as if it had already happened. Notice, he, he speaks to them as though he knows what will already happen because he does. Because he is God. Now, there's another piece of evidence that we have in here in this text that reveals that Jesus is God, and it's in the way Jesus refers to himself. He refers to himself here in verse 31 as Lord. In fact, this is the first time in all of Jesus' public ministry that he refers to himself as the Lord. Verse 31, if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. Commentator D.A. Carson writes, this is the first time Jesus refers to himself as the Lord, the sovereign one who controls his own destiny, even as he enters into Jerusalem to suffer at the hands of many. So we have the fact that Jesus is, is saying and knowing things before they happen as though they have already happened. Secondly, that Jesus refers to himself as Lord, but there's a third piece of evidence here that Jesus is God, and it has to do with Jesus' ride. (laughs) Yes, even Jesus' ride makes a statement, right? Look at verse 35. Actually, let's back up to verse 33. As they were untying the cold, its owner said to them, why are you untying the cold? And they said, the Lord has need of it, verse 35, and they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. Now the Greek word for colt here can refer to either a donkey or a horse. 
And the other gospels make it clear that this is, in fact, a donkey. Now, just think for a moment. If you are living in the first century and you want to make a statement, my guess is a donkey is not your first choice. Maybe it's a war horse. Maybe it's a thoroughbred. Like if it's me, I'm wanting a Belgium just because they're big and massive and strong and they've got to make a statement riding into Jerusalem on a Belgium horse. But that's not what Jesus does. And there's a reason for that. And in fact, the crowd recognizes the reason that Jesus enters into Jerusalem on a donkey because they know their Old Testaments. And in the Old Testament, the prophet Zechariah, who prophesied about the Messiah to come, prophesied with these words, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. Did you see that? Zechariah writing 500 years before Jesus is led by the Spirit of God to write that Jerusalem will one day rejoice because her Savior has arrived, her Messiah has arrived, her King has arrived, and he has arrived humbly riding on a donkey. Jesus is making a statement here. He could have chosen to ride into Jerusalem on anything he wanted. He could have chosen to walk into Jerusalem. He could have chosen to have his disciples carry him into Jerusalem. But he chooses a donkey. Because that's what was prophesied. Jesus is fulfilling the prophecy. Like, don't let anyone convince you that Jesus did not believe himself to be God. Or that it was his followers who much later invented his divinity. No, Jesus is making a statement here, and he's making it publicly. But he's not just making a statement that he is this prophesied Messiah and prophesied king. He's making a statement about the kind of king that he is as well. Again, he doesn't ride into Jerusalem on a war horse, not only because that's not the prophecy, but also because that's not his mission, at least yet. There is a day coming when Jesus will return with a sword, and he will return as a victorious, warring king, and he will return on a war horse. That day is yet to come. But here, Jesus has not come as a king warring against his enemies. He's come as a humble servant about to sacrifice his life for the salvation of his people. And a donkey is connected to peace and humility And this particular donkey, we're told, had never been ridden before. It's the perfect animal to signify a noble purpose, a purpose worthy of a king, because Jesus is God. But there's one more piece of evidence that demonstrates to us that Jesus is God from this text. But this is kind of extra credit. Like, this is, we're going to move to 400 level Bible theology right now. 
And so you're going to have to put your thinking caps on. Be in second service. I'm sure you're more alert and awake than first service was, but they got this. But when you see it, it'll be worth it. And that is that in this text, there are three references to stones. Yes, you heard that right. Stones. Three references to stones. And the first is implied in verse 38. So if you look at verse 38, right in the middle of all of the celebration, the crowd, and specifically Jesus' followers, proclaim, verse 38, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They were not just making up those words on the spot. Those words come directly from Psalm 118. Remember, the people surrounding Jesus knew their Old Testaments. Most of them knew their Old Testaments much better than we know our Old Testament. And they knew that those words come from Psalm 118. But just a few stanzas earlier in Psalm 118, we read these words, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And so that is a well-known, well-used reference throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, referring in the Old Testament to the Messiah to come, referring in the New Testament to the Messiah who has arrived. He is the stone who would be rejected by his followers and rejected by people around him and rejected by the people to whom he came. And yet, he is the stone that although he was rejected, will become, and for us today, has become the cornerstone. He's become the foundation on which our lives are built and the church of Jesus Christ is built and the foundation for our eternity rests. And so this stone refers to Jesus. He's rejected, and yet he is the cornerstone. And so when the disciples celebrate the arrival of Jesus with the words of Psalm 118, they are attributing that psalm to him, which is acknowledging that he is the cornerstone, that this man riding on the donkey is the one who is rejected, and yet the one who has become the Messiah, the cornerstone, that Jesus is God. That's the first stone. The second stone is related to the Pharisees because the Pharisees are not buying any of this. In fact, they tell Jesus' followers to essentially just, Jesus, you need to get your followers to shut up. This is too much. Verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Verse 40, and he answered, I tell you, If these were silent, the very stones would cry out. There's the word stones again. The primary point here is that even if Jesus' disciples are silenced, and even if Jesus is silenced, it will not silence or derail God's purposes in Jesus because Jesus is clearly God. And what happens in just the next seven days following this account? Jesus' followers are silenced, and the crowd is silenced who support him. 
and his followers flee. And Jesus is silenced because he's hung on the cross and he's killed. And at the moment he is killed, what happens? Well, scripture tells us that there was a great earthquake and the rocks split apart and there was a mighty roar. What was happening? Even if you silence my followers, even if you seek to physically kill the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, God's purposes will not be thwarted. They will not be derailed because even the rocks will testify that Jesus is the Messiah. That's our second rock, our stone. But there's one more reference to stone that helps us to see <clears throat> that Jesus is God. Look at verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city of Jerusalem, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And we'll see more about this later, but notice that even amid all of the celebration, Jesus weeps because the people of Jerusalem have rejected him. And in their rejection of Jesus, they're not just rejecting a man. They're, they're rejecting the Messiah. And in rejecting the Messiah, they are bringing upon themselves the penalty of their unbelief, which is the destruction of their city. And Jesus says, not one stone will be left on another. The stones that make up the city walls and the city houses and the city dwelling places, not one stone will be sitting on top of another. Why? Because they failed to recognize that Jesus is God, that he is the Messiah. They failed to know that they were visited by their king. Because Jesus is the divine king. Jesus is God. Now the truth that Jesus is God should comfort us. And Jesus knew the future. Jesus fulfilled prophecy. He was not surprised by the rejection of the Jews. And he's not surprised by the events of our lives. It's not like, oh, let's go audible here. I'm not sure what we're going to do. Never. He's not caught off guard. He is in complete control. He protects and guards and saves his own. In other words, his mission is not compromised by his unpopularity among the crowds or by the work of the enemy because he has and he will succeed in every way to accomplish the purposes of God. Jesus is God. Secondly, this morning, We should see that Jesus, secondly, is obedient. <clears throat> he is obedient. In fact, earlier in Jesus' ministry, 
He said this according to John chapter 6. For I have come down, Jesus said, from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So Jesus is obedient to the Father every single step of the way. So when we read in verse 28 that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, we shouldn't just read that as a stage note. Like Luke's not like, hmm, let me help you visualize what's going on and and put some stuff in parentheses here. No. Jesus is willingly going to Jerusalem because the prophets have said that Jerusalem is where he will die. And Jesus has said that this is where he will die. In fact, he's told his disciples as much. If just look back in Luke chapter 18, this is where we would have been this morning if we would, just, would have continued uh, in our series. Luke chapter 18, verse 31. And Jesus, taking the, the, the twelve, said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Jesus has been planning and preparing this for some time now. And he's told his disciples repeatedly about what is to come. And now he goes in obedience to the Father to surrender his life for the ransom of all who believe. In fact, you just kind of imagine what this would have been like for Jesus. Verse 37 tells us that he was on the road on the way down from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem. And as he was descending the Mount of Olives, he would have been able to see off in the distance the Temple Mount and the temple where sacrifices were regularly made, knowing that he was about to offer his life as a sacrifice. And he would have passed right by the place where in less than a week he would hang and die on a Roman cross. And even as he looks out on these sites, he still goes in obedience to the Father the king of kings, entering the city, coming to die. I think it's important for us to remember that Jesus was not a victim of corrupt authority. Some have tried to advance that theory recently. In fact, You may even see that idea in commercials or advertising that somehow Jesus was a victim of unjust leaders and helpless casualty of an oppressive system. So when we suffer in those ways, he knows what we go through. Nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus is God. In fact, you remember that Jesus told Pilate as he stood trial before Pilate, and he said to Pilate, you would have no authority (laughs) at all except the little bit that my father has given to you. And even as he was being arrested, he said, 
If I wanted to stop this, if I wanted to change directions, if I was somehow a victim here to to a corrupt power system, I could, in a moment, call down an army of angels and wipe every one of you out. It's my paraphrase. But Jesus was in complete control. He was in complete authority. He wasn't a victim. He wasn't a casualty. No, he was willingly obedient to the Father's plan. Who wants to worship a Savior who is simply a victim and is powerless to stop the evil in his day? I don't. And I'm grateful the scripture is clear that Jesus chose willingly to go to the cross. He was the definition of power controlled by conviction and controlled by love. That his death would accomplish something great. He was convinced that his enduring of the cross and his death would would, would secure eternal salvation for all who believe. Just as we read earlier, that he should lose nothing of all that the Father had given to him but raise it up on the last day. You see, friends, if Jesus' life had been taken from him, he would deserve pity. But because he willingly surrendered his life, he deserves worship. His obedience has provided salvation for all who believe. In fact, Paul, the first century church planter and missionary, highlighted this when he contrasted Adam, whose sin brought death into the world, and Christ, whose obedience brings life. Paul wrote in Romans 5, For as the one man's obedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Jesus is God. Jesus was obedient. Because he was obedient. That means everything to us. Third, notice, Jesus is both celebrated and rejected Look at verse 35 again. They brought the colt, the donkey, to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Jesus brings a divided response. He did throughout his entire ministry, he brought a divided response. Some celebrate him as the Son of God, and others reject him as a fraud. We see that here. The spreading their coats on the road seems like a weird thing to do. Like, why, what are they doing? But it was very common in the first century. In fact, long before that, in the Old Testament, when Jehu was proclaimed king of Israel in 2 Kings 9, people spread their coats on the road as he rode into the city. The people were showing that they believed that Jesus is the king. 
And with a loud voice, they praise God for all that they had seen Jesus do. And they connect Jesus with the promise of Psalm 118, that God's anointed king would come and do his work and be the cornerstone on which lives and eternity is built. Like, that's a big statement. But not all believe. The Pharisees and and likely others in the crowd reject Jesus' identity. In fact, we see that not only in the response of the Pharisees here, but in Jesus' words in 41 through 44. He weeps over Jerusalem because although he had visited, although he had come to earth and took on flesh and lived and ministered publicly, he was rejected by so many. I think we see the Pharisees here. They're, they're, they're not wanting to do anything to disturb the peace. They're not wanting to do anything to, to bring trouble from the Romans. They're afraid that this uproar will provoke the Romans to shut down their city and take away their freedoms. In other words, they're more concerned with pacifying Rome than with worshiping Christ. Like Jesus, can't you shut up your followers? Don't you know what's at stake here? And in rejecting Jesus, they bring on the punishment to themselves of all who reject Jesus as Messiah. Now, just in case we are tempted to look down on these Pharisees for their rejection of Jesus, let's remember that apart from the Holy Spirit opening our eyes and apart from the Holy Spirit softening, transplanting really our rebellious hearts, we too would reject Jesus. Like to put it another way, the only difference between us and the Pharisees, so many of the Pharisees at least, is that the Lord has mercifully opened our eyes to see his glory and our sin and mercifully opened our eyes to see the beauty and the glory of salvation through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he has mercifully given us faith that we might turn and repent and believe and trust in Jesus Christ. We don't get credit for any of this. This is all the work of our merciful God who provided Jesus Christ to live without sin, to willingly go to the cross, to die taking on the punishment that we rightfully deserve as rebels against God. And yet he didn't stay dead. The father raised his son from the dead three days later, demonstrating That Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient to cover the sin of all who believe. And yet, even today, there are those who reject Jesus. And our hearts ought to grieve for that. The fourth thing to notice in our text, number four, is that Jesus is human. Jesus is human. I know we want to be really quick to say, he was also fully God, and rightfully so. 
But let's not miss the fact that he's also fully human, even as he is fully God. And he demonstrates that in the fact that he weeps over Jerusalem. In fact, I think we get this beautiful picture of the heart of our triune God in Jesus. And it's not just my idea. I don't just think that. But the author of Hebrews tells us that in many ways. And at many times, God has spoken through the prophets. But in these last days, God has spoken to us through his Son, The fact that his son is the exact imprint of the nature of God. The fact that the son is the clearest way we see what our triune God is like. We see that here. Even in his weeping over Jerusalem. And the people are shouting Hosanna and yet he weeps because he knows the superficiality of some of their hearts. He knows the the outright rejection of so many of the Jews. Can you imagine what this would have been like? Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, which declares that the king has arrived. And some of the people rightly acknowledge this and see this. And so they lay their coats down on the road, recognizing the king has arrived, the king has come, and people are shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. There is a king, a new king, who who has come to town. People are celebrating this. At long last, the Messiah has visited us, and others are rejecting Jesus and and telling the, the followers of Jesus to be quiet, and even as all of this goes on, in the midst of how loud this must have been, there sits Jesus, and he's weeping. He is weeping because he knows the superficiality of some of their hearts and he knows the outright rejection of so many, even in the crowd that day. And he cries because he knows that by and large, the Jews to which he came to save will reject him. They won't believe. Tragically, they will cling to their man-made traditions instead of the Messiah. And in fact, perhaps some who even in the crowd shouted out in celebration would in less than a week cry out for his execution. And so here again we have a picture of the heart of Christ. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, verse 42, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and they will surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. If we fast-forwarded from that moment almost exactly 40 years, what we would find is the Roman army surrounding Jerusalem. Cutting off Jerusalem under the emperor Titus. And thousands of men and women and children being killed. You see, the people will live with the consequences of their rejection of the Messiah. 
both then and now. But notice the heart of Christ in this. He does not gloat over their punishment. He doesn't say, well, I tried. I ministered. I taught year after year after year. I raised the dead. Like, What more do you want me to do to demonstrate that I am the Messiah? That you would believe. But Jesus doesn't gloat. This is not a cold sovereignty. In fact, nowhere in Scripture do we read of God being a God of cold sovereignty. Even though the rejection of Jesus by many of the Jews was predicted in the Old Testament, Jesus still mourns over their rejection. And we as Christ's people ought to have the same attitude towards those around us who don't know Jesus, who are not trusting in Jesus alone for their salvation, are not walking by faith seeking to follow Jesus Christ. We should care about them. We should care about their rejection, and we should mourn their rebellion and their lostness. And this should motivate us to have gospel conversations, whether it's across the street or across around the globe. Finally, number five, we wouldn't do justice to this text if we didn't see how all of it demonstrates that Jesus is worthy of glory. Jesus is worthy of glory. Jesus will reign. Jesus will not be defeated. He will surrender his life, but he will ultimately reign. And in fact, the nations of the world and the people of the nations of the world will eternally depend on whether they embraced or rejected Jesus. Even as his followers cried out again in verse 38, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory Glory, glory in the highest. This is all for God to be glorified. The plan of redemption, the plan of salvation, the plan of God the Father to send God the Son to come into our world and to live without sin and to sacrifice his own life on the cross to be raised again by the Father from the dead three days later to ascend to the Father's right hand and to one day come and rule and reign in his kingdom fullness for all eternity with those of us who trust in him, all of that is from beginning to end about the glory of God. Which is why I think we see the same kind of language at Jesus' birth. Remember what the angels said to the shepherds? Glory to God in the highest. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. And what what does the crowd cry out? Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. We should be reminded here, even as Jesus approaches death, This is all for God's glory so that his infinite worth and the the infinite value and glory and treasure of God would be seen for what it is. But the story's not done because we can't see the disciples celebrating Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem without thinking about another Jerusalem. 
the new Jerusalem, the church of Jesus Christ. We can't help but see Jesus' arrival here and not think about his return one day. When he will arrive back on earth with power and with glory and celebration. When we will say, Hosanna, the king has come. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When he arrives back on earth to at long last fully and finally defeat sin and death. And to at last fully and finally save and restore his people. You see, the joy of these people that day outside Jerusalem is but a dim reflection of the joy and the glory that will be ours when at long last Jesus returns, not as a suffering servant, but as a victorious king, the king before whom every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Stand with me, let's pray. Father, it is no small thing to be entrusted with declaring your glory. God, I'm, I'm so aware this morning that, that, even, that even now, even this morning, through my own imperfect communication and my own shortcomings, your glory is not, well, we're not able to grasp it apart from the help of your Holy Spirit and the work of your Holy Spirit. And even then, we, we will see some of your glory, but we never will be able to, to grasp the fullness of your glory, and we will spend eternity every day seeing new attributes of your glory, seeing the depths of your glory even more vividly. And we long for that day. And I pray that we would be captured and captivated this morning that you in love would send your son, Jesus Christ, that he would enter into our world, that he would be fully obedient, fully God and fully man, and that although rejected by some and embraced by others, he was not derailed in his plan to accomplish salvation for those who believe. Father, thank you for the obedience of your son, Jesus. Thank you for his willingness to go to the cross. Because of that, we who trust in you long for his return. I pray now that even as we sing, this would be our heart's response. Declaring your glory and your greatness, your, your worthiness to be praised, not just in this song, but that this song would represent our entire lives. We pray this all in the powerful name of Jesus and for his glory.